from Cowork 591 Studios. This is the Steve Brown Art Center Podcast Network. I'm Jim Gillespie with Dale Reber, and our producer is Blake Tempest. This is the Jessup News for February 20th, 2023. On today's podcast, we introduce Marsha McLaughlin. We look at the entries of this year's 2023 I Did Ride and talk a little bit about it. We have guest reporter Joe Olson, who talks about the Limburger Cheese War that took place in 1935 in Independence, Iowa. We talk about a need for daycare in our country. We talk about the top 10 Super Bowl snacks, and we give you the top stories in Jessup News. We are sponsored this week, as always, by Reyes Concrete Service in Littleton, Iowa. The Littleton LLC Lounge, they're open from 10 in the morning till about 11 at night. And the Littleton Chatham Historical Society, the Littleton Chatham Historical Society strives to accurately document, promote, preserve the history of the Littleton and Chatham area to cultivate interest and educational understanding for future generations. And a more recent sponsor is Dream Chaser Acres. Um, Dream Chaser Acres is a home away from home for your cats and dogs. Stop in and see Virgil and Tracy if you're going on vacation. As I've told you, we've been working on two two other podcasts, a music podcast called Concerts from 591, and we have those on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast. And also stories from River Road Boulevard. The Steve Brown Arts Center is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that has a vision for artists, young and old alike, to have the opportunity to better themselves while helping to build the skills of those around them. It will be offering community programming starting in Jessup before expanding to neighboring communities. Programming will include a community speaker series that will showcase existing creatives, One of those creatives is on tonight, Joel Olson from Laces and Independence, who reside within a community as well as a pop-up series that will spotlight and partner with local businesses to provide opportunities for community engagement. The long-range vision is to house a rural artist residency program for professional and emerging artists in all areas of the arts and the humanities. Artists will be offered accommodation and studio space in exchange for a contribution of labor and maintenance of the buildings and grounds. We want to shout out to our listeners in Scotland. What you're doing for for your country will go down in history. We want to say hi to all our new listeners this week. Um, We're adding on about 15 new listeners every month. We want to say hi to our friends that have been listening since we started. We appreciate your loyalty every week that you you listen, so thank you very much. We have some breaking news uh, that that uh, Dale can tell us about. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of news out, Dale, recently about uh, the Farmer's Day that takes place July 6th, 7th, and 8th, I believe, this year. Can you tell us about that, Dale? Okay, well, we had our first uh, committee meeting Tuesday night, and uh, we'll probably meet every week or two weeks now until July. And uh, Alan Wright is the president. He's got all the entertainment lined up and everything, but we always try to have a a thing uh, each year. And this year we've been working with the people of NASA about getting some space kinds of things here. And uh, 
Mike Fetgater is our man on the job, and he's doing a great job. But one thing we talked about at our last meeting is there's a spacesuit, a NASA spacesuit that they have modified so that people can crawl inside of it and have their picture taken in it and just see what it's like to be in a, a NASA spacesuit. And uh, so we had a contract for them, and they send it. It's free to, to use it, but... The minute it leaves Houston, you are liable for $36,000 plus. So if anything happens to that spacesuit, then you have to pay them $36,000, even though they probably will never replace it or anything. And so we're a little antsy because that would just about break us. So we're looking to see if we can find some insurance that will cover us in case we would have to be. Now, the chances are really small, and so we're hoping that the insurance would not cost too much. But anyway, we're hoping that that comes. We signed a contract for that. And that will be uh, coming. There's also, uh, as I said, four men called uh, NASA ambassadors that will come and give programs about the NASA experience and this sort of thing. And uh, three of the four are available that week, I guess, and the fourth we just don't know about yet. And so we're hoping that at least one of those people will be able to come and maybe all three would be great. Uh, our theme this year is blast off to Jessup because we're having these rockets. Right. Uh, NASA kind of things, and and to go along with that, we have purchased one of these huge bouncy things mm -hmm. uh, for Farmer's Day this year, and it'll be a rocket ship that the kids can play on. And so uh, we got news just today that it's made, it's being packaged, and it will be shipped, so we should have it in plenty of time. So uh, that's pretty good. We're looking real hard at having a three-on-three -three basketball tournament over here on the new courts in the park. Uh, and I think Brock Sabres is going to help us with that, unless right. he says no. But we're looking. <laughs> I guess they have talked to Brock Sabres, and he's shown some interest in that. And we have a, a business that's going to sponsor this for us. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking. I think this has huge potential to have from kids through adults to play three-on-three -three basketball right. and have some kind of a tournament uh, uh, because that's a wonderful facility over there. And so uh, I'm not going to put the business on the spot. I don't know right. if you remember, Dale, um, about the time your children were in high school, there used to be Gus Macker three-on-three tournaments mm -hmm. all over our country. Sure, I remember that, yeah. And I think that's why when they first brought when we first brought this up last year after the courts were built, I thought, well, that's got real potential. I guess mm -hmm. I didn't remember the name or when we had it, but I knew that there was such a thing right. and that uh, that would happen. And uh, I don't know if people know, but in Joe's Pizza, they have a basket inside the door with basketballs in it. And if you want to go play, you can come in and get a basketball, and all they ask is that you bring it back when you're done with it. So I thought uh, that's really neat the way they're helping uh, uh, with that. And okay. so uh, I guess that's about all I can share with you right now. But uh, we're working on oh, I was going to tell you, most of you know they come to farm. We have an excellent carnival. It's, it's, it's far better than anything you see in any of these small-town celebrations, and we're so lucky to have them. And before they come to us, they are in Clear Lake. And they are there for the 4th of July plus one day after that. Well, this year, as you see how the weeks, the, the days fall in the week in July, so they will not be here on Thursday like they usually are because their travel day has to be Thursday oh, because okay. of the way the calendar is. And so we're, we're really looking for uh, activities or things that we can get for Thursday night that would kind of make up for that. But mm. they will be here uh, Friday and Saturday with the wristband deal and that sort of thing, so that works really good. But then the following year... Uh, as it stands right now, we will not have a carnival because that's leap year. Everything moves up a day, and so they will be in Clear Lake, and they've run out of weeks. And so uh, 
We're trying. We don't know if if it's possible we reschedule or if uh, it's impossible. We've been looking, but it's hard to find other carnivals that uh, aren't busy. Right. That are worthwhile. And we had to do this a few years ago when the dates fell wrong, and we, we were able to find. We went over to uh, Franklin County to look at the fair over there and talk to their man, and he mm -hmm. had a, the week we needed, so he came over with his carnival. And but. Uh, uh, I guess he only does in Nebraska now. Oh, so, okay. So, so I don't know. That's something that that's a you know a whole year and a half away, but that's still something that we have to think about right. as far as what we're going to do differently. So, but uh, anyway, Farmers Day is it's coming. Well, uh, you know the that Thursday night may be an opportunity for Steve Brown Art Center to help a little bit. Perhaps uh, I know this year uh, that that the Steve Brown Art Center is going to provide a couple bands. Um, for the gazebo, maybe one okay. of those can be on Thursday night. Yeah. And the other, this year um, we provided one, or this past year we provided one on, on uh, Saturday afternoon. Mm -hmm. And perhaps uh, we can go Thursday night and Saturday afternoon. Yeah, so, well, we'll just have to see how it all works out. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. But yeah, uh, anybody that has an idea, we'd love to hear it. So. All right, all right. Well, thank you, Dale. Yeah, well, thank you for asking. So. Yeah, yeah. Keep us up to date on that, Dale, please. I, w I will be glad to because uh, this is my passion. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. I understand. I, you know, if uh, if uh, Alan, if Alan was, was not afraid of me, I, I think he would come in and... Uh, talk to you on the podcast yeah well you know if he didn't know he's being filmed he would be all right but uh <laughs> yeah he, he he just wants to help you know he just wants to do he loves this community so much and he just wants to uh to do he thinks this is a great thing for the community and he works awful hard on it so he uh, does so but he doesn't want to talk to anybody no him, so. and i understand there's, yeah. there's a lot of people I've, I've asked to be on the podcast and and you and i've talked about this before people people are more afraid to of uh, speaking in public than dying, actually. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, how is it that you and I are just so eager to get our face up on the screen? <laughs> I, I don't understand that. It's but, probably uh, because we both did it for thirty some years. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, thank you, Dale. Yeah, you're very welcome. This is the Steve Brown Art Center Podcast <laughs> Network. I'm Jim Gillespie with Dale Reber and producer Blake Tempest. In library news this week, the Little Tots Story Time meets every Thursday at ten thirty. Uh, the Spice Club this month is, for fe February, is Curry. Um, make sure you stop in the library and, and get set up with that. Save the dates. Uh, the Book Club Monday, February 20th at 1 p.m. is Secret Daughter by Showpiece Maya Gouda. Books are available at the front desk. Don't forget the Kids Snack, Tuesday, February 21st at 3.30 p.m. at the JPL. Um, all snacks may include gluten, dairy, and or nuts, so please plan accordingly. Recommended for ages kindergarten through fourth grade. Pre-registration is required. You can find us on Facebook. This is a new event um, for your gardeners out there. There's a seed swap event Saturday, February 25th from 1030 until noon. Um, that's just ahead of when when uh, the Steve Brown Arts Center sponsors Barb Prawl here at uh, Cowork 591. Um, she's here from 2 until 4, so stop in the library in the morning go, and then uh, go home and have lunch and come back to, to Cowork 591 and meet Barb Prawl, the artist from Marion. 
Each adult attendee can choose up to five free packets of seed, and children 12 and under can pick two free packets of their very own, bring a gardening buddy or the whole family. Library and is made not, and possible by the nine square feet. This is highly anticipated multi-location and gardening event and is free and open to the public. An awesome collection of seed varieties, vegetables and herbs, flowers, and native prairie species will be available, also including small space selections, easy-to-grow varieties, and perennial pollinator-friendly selections. Nine square feet is providing each swap location with a great selection of seed varieties just right for your garden. For any questions about the seed swap at the JPL, contact Becky Burke at bburke at Jessup dot library dot ia dot us or at 319-827-1533. Movie Mondays of February 27th at 1 p.m. Life Mark starring Kirk Cameron and Rebecca Rogers Nelson. Rated PG-13 runs 1 hour and 45 minutes. Popcorn and water bottles are provided. Calling all coffee lovers. Remember that uh, the Velvet Coffee Company is working with Jessup to uh, do a fundraiser. And don't forget to stay hydrated. A 30-ounce Polar Camel water bottle with the JPL logo is available for for purchase online. Friends of the Jessup Public Library is a nonprofit support organization that improves the services and resources of the library and promotes citizenship involvement in the community. Membership forms are available at the library. Don't forget, you can check multiple things out the li- at the library and the Jessup Public Library Endowment Fund was established to ensure longevity of materials and resources for the community. You can donate anytime you would like to the Jessup Library, a cash gift, or request um, provide future support for the library and memorial gift service, special tribute for loved ones. Last but not least, the 1,000 Books Before Kindergarten program at the JPL is designed to be simple and encourage making reading a daily habit for your young children. Sign up at the library to receive a log to record your child's first 100 books or use 1,000 Books Before Kindergarten app available in your app store on iTunes. This is the Steve Brown Arts Center Podcast Network. Do you ever eat anything with curry in it? Or it's India food. A few from India, right? Where there's right. curry, and I guess I have no experience with that at all. But uh, if I did, I don't. I don't recall. Somebody slipped it to you. Yeah. Right now. It's interesting to me. The first time I went to Chicago on a, I took a bus in, and driving through downtown Chicago, and you would see, you know, Vietnamese restaurant, Chinese restaurant, Bulgarian. You know, just one after the other as you went through the neighborhoods, and how many different kinds of food you can get in this country that from all over the world that the it's just uh, it's just amazing right uh, how many there are and that they all have found a home here in the United States and able to make a living selling their native food so I just think that's wonderful so it is, it is. We're, we're fortunate are you a spicy foods person Dale no and uh <laughs> I eat the lasagna at the brown bottle once a year you know and then I go, <laughs> you know, so I'm not real spicy no uh uh, when I was in California, I had two friends that were both Mexican, right. Mexican-Americans, and they would take me into town to have dinner, 
at Mexican restaurants and not chain ones, but little mom and pop ones in the neighborhood that they knew about. And they would just order for me. Uh-huh. And it was very interesting because I wished I had taken some notes because some of it was really delicious, but I have no idea what I was you eating. Remember, yeah. But they had these little sampler platters where they just get me stuff. And uh, uh, so I think I would like to eat more if I had the opportunity and somebody to help me, you know. Right. So I had food sickness before I hate having food sickness. <laughs> That's my worst. I'd rather have an arm shot off or something. But All right. Well, the, in Jessup news, our third through sixth grade girls basketball teams have completed their seasons. Brock Sabres would like me to thank their coaches who helped make it a successful one. Those are Carl, Kayla and Ryan Andreessen, Shane Siebel, Josh Weber, Mandy Glider, Stephanie Curry, excuse me, Stephanie Cherry, forgive me, Stephanie Cherry, Dee Dee Weber, Amy Bucknell, Sarah DeVore, Jenna Grover, and Nicole Weber. Another successful year of J-League is in the book. Thanks to Coach Mines for taking the time to talk to nearly all of our teams after their last games. The future of the Jayhawk basketball is bright. We had five teams competing in the league this year with two of our teams competing up an age level and our fifth grade team splitting into two teams. Combined, we finished with a record of 42-18. and 18. Special shout out to the sixth graders who completed their J-League career with 36-0 record. Thank you to all of our parents and siblings for all of the time you spent watching the kids play and getting them to practice. And a special shout out to those who refereed or ran the scoreboard. Even you, Kaylee B., even though it cost me a whole bag of suckers. <laughs> That's from Brian. Yeah. Thank you to all who helped with cleanup after games, especially to Dusty and Diane Bain for always going above and beyond. Thanks to everyone who gave up time on their weekend to help in the concession stand. Thank you to our high school players who officiated the sixth grade games. Brevin Dahl, Jack Miller, Kale Chisel officiated the sixth grade games. Ryan Treptow, Brendan Oshner, Caden Lang, Paxton McCone, and former player Corbin Fulin. Last and certainly not least, thank you to all the volunteer coaches who work with the kids so for so many hours during the season. The improvement from day one until now is very noticeable. They are Matt Hosford, Tim Brown, Keith Norig, Chris Roberts, Adam Van Pelt, Casey D'Souza, Joe Dow, Jack Berg, Tim Turnus, and Nick Cole. Registration is open on February 19th for our first and second Grade Boys and Girls Basketball Clinics. The clinic will be held on March 4th in the South Gym. The Boys Clinic will go from 9 to 10.30, followed by the girls from 10.30 to 12. The high school coaching staffs will be running the clinic with help from high school players. Cost is $25, which includes a shirt. Use the new Jessup RevTrack website to get signed up. Contact Brock Sabres with any questions. Third through sixth grade basketball and softball registrations is now open as well on the Jessup Rev Track website. Pickleball continues on Sunday evening at 6.30 in the North Gym. A note from Margie in the superintendent's office. She says, I think most parents will know, but to be sure, we had two snow makeup days built into our school calendar that will now be used as regular school days. They are February 20th, and April 11th. 
These are just for Jessup Community Schools. St. Ayu will not be having school on February 20th, and they have not decided as of yet about the 11th of April. Um, so stay tuned for that. Just mentioned the, the youth basketball program. It's, yes. uh, my grandsons live in, two of them live in Hudson, and they both came over and played in, in those Sunday leagues. Oh, really? And then they came to the summer basketball camps. Uh, and in Hudson, uh, my grandson plays for Hudson, and then also Larry and Dorothy Thompson, Larry and Dorothy Thompson their grandson also plays for Hudson. <laughs> so you have a Jessup connection there. But those kids came over and they played with Jack Miller and these other kids in the summertime in these camps, I think, through eighth grade. And uh, so you develop some friendships with kids that you're going to be playing against, mm -hmm. you know, the next four years in high school. And uh, it's just wonderful when kids get out of their own town and work with other players. And Jessup has a real nice program that they run on the weekends. And then also that the the summer camp that they run is a really good one. And a lot of Hudson basketball players uh, have been to that camp when they were in middle school. So. Well, I, and I, I can remember um, when, when I ran summer camp, um, Dave Stuben's nieces would come up uh, mm -hmm. or would come down from Minnesota and sure. come to camp, yeah. Um, yeah. and and from from smaller smaller towns and around around here from EB and Independence mm -hmm. sure. and Wapsie. You're yeah. right; yeah. It, it is a good thing. It's, yeah, it is. You know, it's not it a bad. It takes thing. the edge off that competition when they're you know later on that they they know everybody. You're just playing the game. That's what you're doing. It's yeah, not, nothing personal in it, and so. Exactly. Uh, so they, I think, I think the Jessup people do a nice job up there at school with that program they run. You're right. This is the Steve Brown Art Center Podcast Network. We have Joel Olson in tonight to talk to us about uh, the Limburger Cheese War that took place in Independence, Iowa, in 1935. Welcome, welcome again, Joe. Well, I'm glad to be here. Um, if, if you, you're the one that uh, mentioned this war to me, and I thought this would be a great idea to have you on. Well, uh, when I listened to Dale's story last week about the Missouri-Iowa almost war, my mind mm -hmm. went immediately to this because in uh, 2015, at the Spirits and Visions banquet for, by the National uh, or by the Buchanan County Historical Society, we reenacted the the Cheese War. But at that time, I don't think Google at least wasn't on my radar, so I just had it, I had a really mm -hmm. rough idea of what this was all about. Uh, and so, as it turns out, our reenactment was pretty uh, inaccurate. <laughs> but the other interesting part of this is as I read different newspaper reports and different uh, reportings of this, there were some changes in the story. So that kind of makes it fascinating, uh -huh. too. But uh, it really is a great story, and it's just, it, it fit the time so well. A very funny and just a, a, a real cool thing. So in 1935, to set the stage, we were in the middle of the Great Depression, which went from 1929 to 1941. Times were tough, and that was right in the middle of those tough times. Hitler was saber-rattling in Germany, doing a lot of his preliminary Jewish uh, restrictions, and uh, the Gestapo was kind of changed, blah, blah, blah. And also, in America, it was the year of the Dust Bowl. So, you know, it was very difficult times, and people were, um, it was just hard. <clears throat> so in this particular story, there's just a few cast of characters. It starts with a farmer's wife in Independence, Iowa, who went to the doctor, complaining of chronic nasal congestion, and just, just couldn't get rid of this sinus problem. And the doctor said, well, you know, you really should try 
Limburger cheese <laughs> because it may clear things out because if you were to look into the story of Limburger cheese, you would find that it has quite a history because it is so noxious and comparisons to uh, a bag full of socks and uh, dead cats and just awful stuff uh, are out there about. But anyway, so Monroe, Wisconsin is a cheese capital of Wisconsin and Wisconsin's the cheese capital of the United States at that time. So she writes off, gets her order, her block of uh, Limburger cheese, and they ship it off to Independence. Now the other characters are this in this story are Postmaster John Burchard and Warren Miller. Warren Miller's in Independence, Burchard is in Monroe. They package up the Limburger cheese, send it off. Uh, the postal carrier comes in and says, "I can't deliver this. It's terrible. It stinks. I can't. I'm not. It's noxious. It's it's hazardous." The postmaster says, "You're right. We're going to send it back." So they send it back. <laughs> Burchard is starting to get irritated because this is like going into Wisconsin insulting the Packers or something. I mean, it's, it's, this is, uh, and in tough times, you, you, this is, so he's ticked. Rewraps it, sends it back, same thing happens again, gets returned. So he gets a hold of the Postmaster General of the United States. So all of a sudden, this is, gets the attention of the newspapers. <laughs> So this uh, war of, of uh, whether Limburger cheese is hazardous or not is underway. Postmaster uh, says, well, yeah, it does smell bad, and, um, but it tastes good. So uh, he says, you guys are going to have to figure this out. So John Burchart, the mayor or the postmaster in Monroe, challenges Miller to come to a smell-off in Dubuque in the Julian Hotel, which has quite a sordid history, I found out. Uh, <clears throat> so the papers got wind of this. <laughs> oh, but, and if you go back to the newspapers, I mean, this made national because it was tough times. And the, this whole thing was a humorous kind of war about Limburger cheese. The other backdrop story is there was a consensus, or at least the opinion, that Limburger cheese should not be sold in cheese shops because it stunk so bad and it, sh it wrecked the shopping experience. So anyway, there's all sorts of things going on, and the postmaster in Monroe is, uh, is going to see this to the end. So they show up in the Hotel Julian for this, and uh, about 100 people, photographers, newspaper writers from all over the Midwest country. Got, this got into 30 national newspapers. And he comes prepared with cheese men, all sorts of supplies. And I, you know, this is like, okay, this isn't that big of a deal. But he shows up with 25 pounds of Limburger cheese, 10 pounds of Swiss cheese, 5 pounds of brick cheese, 10 cases of Pilsner. Now, beer is key in this because the best thing to go with this cheese is beer. I mean, that's the whole thing. 40 loaves of rye bread, because the real way to have Limburger is a slice on rye bread with a slice of red onion. I mean, that is the primo snack. 10 pounds of pickles, 40 pounds of crackers, and two jars of mustard. So they get to this, there's photographers, and they have this contingent on each side to judge this contest. One story goes to, like, they have a smell-off and it goes through this process. The other side of the story, which is shorter, so I'll tell you that one, is <laughs> that Postmaster Miller fesses up that he does no sense of smell. 
And as he tastes the cheese, he kind of likes it. <laughs> so, you know, winner declared, however it played out, but yeah. I mean, this, this is the end of it, right? No, but someplace in the conversation, as they are debating this cheese thing, the, what's the best snack in America? Well, the Iowa folks say the best snack in America is smoked whitefish, preferably on a cracker, and beer. The Wisconsin folks say that it's the Limburger thing with beer. So Brad Burkhardt challenges again to another uh, contest of you know who's right in the best snack. So they meet in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin for this taste off and of course they're coming with all sorts of things. And so they have like a panel of 10 judges. So they sample uh, the Limburger and beer they sample the whitefish in beer and some arrangements of that, and they all kind of get toasted. And not, <laughs> I mean, not totally drunk, but happy, and they say, hey, it's a tie. They're both good. Right. Yeah. So it's declared a tie, and the story, the, the, you know, the war is over. But it has an even greater ending when the farmer's wife that went to the doctor in the first place, and Miller from Independence, go and are like grand marshals in their cheese fest parade which attracted like 50,000 people after two years of being canceled because of the depression. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess the only other postscript I can think of is that the cheese the Alpine, the Chalet Cheese Company in Monroe still exists as the main Limburger cheese uh, manufacturer in the United States. Mm -hmm. That's something. Yeah. So did the lady ever get to try it for her sinuses? Or? Well, you know, the verdict was out, and it's kind of the, well, some people say it works and some people don't, but there was, it, you know, my wife's a historian, so she would be digging into all the newspapers. Mm -hmm. One of these articles comes from, like, the El Paso Times. Oh, wow. And it's right on the front page. They show a clip of odor wars or, you know, all these plays on words because mm -hmm. they're very dramatic in how they write back then. It's really quite eloquent in, the, in, their, in their writing style. And some really big names in journalism got onto this story. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was kind of a moment of levity, I think, for the country. Well, but, sure. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a great story. I'll, it really is. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to... We'll have to find some Limburger, Limburger cheese and try it. <laughs> well, well, he I was saying that stuff. It sounded like lunch at your house. That's what uh, it sounded right, like. Right, right. Uh, well, Braunschweiger's <laughs> got to be right up in there, too. You know? I, I suppose, yeah. So uh, We ate Velveeta at my house. When oh, I was, that's yeah, all we right, could afford. Right, so, right, right. But, uh, well, Monroe, we visited there, and it really is a cheese mecca because all the stores in there have all these varieties. I don't think we went to the Chalet. But uh, you can bet the next time we get there, I'm going to get some Limburger and bring mm -hmm. it home. How big is Monroe? Uh, slightly bigger than Independence, I think. Okay. And they have a wonderful downtown square where all these shops and decorations. And, you know, it's a layout that most of us don't have where there's one road going through it. So. Right. <clears throat> right. Well, we'll have to uh, contact uh, the Chamber of Commerce in Monroe. And <laughs> oh, yes, I read the article in the Monroe Times. It, it, it's, uh, I could dig deeper, but I don't think I would. Uh, yeah, but yeah. I, I guess one other thing is that is one of the things in lore is that the phrase cut the cheese came from Limburger cheese because when you slice the block, it just 
Poof. Oh, like, oh okay. Uh, like, <laughs> see, we learned something else. Exactly. Anyway. All right. You didn't teach that in social studies. <laughs> no, <did you? laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for coming in tonight. Yes, thank you. It was great. Yeah. As far as middle school news is concerned, we, we have a new principal next year. Her name is Gina Felt. Um, we talked about Gina a couple weeks mm -hmm. ago. Yep. Um, and uh, Gina... Gina will start um, July 1st, I believe, is when she starts um, her contract. She is a teacher presently at Union. Oh, okay. And uh, her, her husband teaches in the Jessup Middle School. Okay, yeah. So. That's where, and if you remember the Bice Lines, they are in Union now. Yes, Both working yes. there, so, in the music department, so. Yes. Wow. Um, so, thank you. And that that's an announcement we need to make. Uh, we... The Steve Brown Arts Center had set up um, a an arrangement with uh, a jazz festival at Union High School with okay. with Mike Beisline, yeah. and because of some issues with the conference this year, that uh, that will not work out. So that that's off the Steve Brown Arts Center schedule for March 28th of this year, okay. but. But we talked to Mike, and it sounds like it will be back on the schedule for next year. So okay. thank you for bringing that up. Well, Dale. sure. And you know, you know, his wife offered to give me voice lessons one time, but I, I don't think there's any hope. So, but, so they're nice people, really nice. People. Yes, they are. Yes, and they have they a kid are. that plays against my kid in you know because Union plays Hudson quite often in different right. things, and so they, I think he plays baseball. I know for sure. And okay. so. Uh, so yeah, you run into these people as you walk, you know, go around the league. It's really, it's really a lot of fun. So. Yes, it is. This is the Steve Brown Arts Center Podcast Network. Dale, I, I'm, I'm interested. As uh, you guys had children, you ended up with three children. Who babysat, or what did you do for child care as, uh, as they grew up? Okay, well, we used the Mastiller girls. <laughs> we started with Denise, and then went to uh, uh, Rhonda. You know, and as they graduated, moved on to Rhonda, and then, uh, oh, now I can't think of their name, but I think there are three or at least three of them babysat with our kids. Uh, and uh, so we used the master of kids almost. Uh, we had a night, Mrs. Uh, McAfee, I don't know if you knew her. Uh, she would stay, like, and, uh, well, Marion, when we needed to go to the hospital to have another baby, Marion Stoddard would come and stay with <laughs> whoever was in the house already. And... Uh, but mainly it was those Mastiller girls. If you were just going to go out to a movie or something, yeah. uh, those Mastiller girls, and you, they were in demand. I don't know how much they made babysitting, but they had to do all right in high school. And uh, but no, they were they were just wonderful uh, babysitters. I heard on a uh, on a podcast I was listening to about Pam. Uh, Pam's the other one. I'm sorry. Pam, I get that thank you. I yeah, any, I don't want any trouble with Mastiller. Okay. <laughs> um, that uh, for a Family with four children, mm -hmm. it costs it costs today for a babysitter twenty eight dollars an hour. Oh, is that right? Oh man. Yeah, today. So, yeah. So thing things have changed drastically yeah. from from that that time, Dale. Yeah. Uh, the this is from an article um, by Rachel Cohn from Vox Media. And I will talk a little bit about it, but Ra Rachel, Rachel covers it pretty hard. Uh, 
because there's a definite need in our country for child care right now. It's going through, Jessup, Jessup is going through this issue right uh-huh. now. Yes, I know. On the Senate floor in early August, just two days before lawmakers voted to pass the Inflation Reduction Act, four senior Democrats came out to lament what they believed to be the bill's biggest omission, child care. We cannot simply vote on the package and call it a day, said Senator Patty Murray. Our child care system isn't just stretched thin, it's broken. Less than two months later, the extent of the brokenness is clearer than ever. Public schools are fully reopened and most pandemic-era restrictions are relaxed. But working conditions for families with kids who need child care are not back to normal. For both workers and parents, already grim trends in child care have only gotten worse since pandemic began. Program costs have increased, while waiting lists in several states number in the tens of thousands. Despite the long wait list, nearly 90,000 fewer people are working in child care now. Uh, McDonald's and those places are now over $15 an hour. Mm-hmm. And they can't afford to pay those at child care right now. Um, we talked about earlier $28 for four children for, for a babysitter. And that's an hour? And for, for an hour. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. You know, it, the, for, one, for one child in our country right now, people are paying around $10,000 a year for child care. Yeah. And that that's a huge issue in our country, yeah. Dale. We just think how much, if you're a working mother, for example, and so you need child care, how much of that of your pay is taken out right away that doesn't go for rent or food or whatever just to pay the person who's watching your kids while you work. Right. And, uh, no, it's uh, the people that stick with it, that work in child care and see the need for it, they, they're... Uh, you can't say enough good things about them. They're doing a, a real service. They, they are. They are. And I, I don't know. I don't know how we change this, Dale. Um, the childcare industry is hanging on by a thread before COVID nineteen. And in late two thousand eighteen, the liberal think tank Center for American Progress de- determined that half of Americans lived in childcare deserts, mm-hmm. sort of like grocery store deserts. Areas where just one child care option exists for every three children in need of care. The number of already scarce centers and home-based child care providers was declining and cost had grown twice as fast as overall inflation since the 1990s. Child care workers also survived on very low wages and often no benefits. But during the pandemic, several factors exasperated these trends, including staffing shortages, increased cost of health and safety supplies, and fewer children attending the full-time, attending full-time. While staff turnover has been an issue in years prior, the child sector continued to lose workers during the pandemic, and they weren't coming back after vaccines became available. Between December of 2019 and March of 2021, at least 8,899 child care centers closed across 37 states. So 9,000 child care centers closed. And another 7,000 licensed home-based child care centers shuttered. To try and stave off additional closures, Congress authorized $39 billion for child care relief as part of a $1.9 
trillion American rescue plan in 2021. Nearly half of all providers reported using these funds to pay off debt they took on during the pandemic, and 92% said that the grants helped them keep their programs open. The median wage for a, for a child care worker in 2021 was $13.22. And that's without without um, benefits. Benefits, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in Jessup here, what are they trying to do? What is their there? There's a discussion. Does the, does the city help build one? Oh, okay. You know, um, there there was talk about um, building one, and that 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 was taken off the table here about a month ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they're still looking at that, but the the issue is, you know, I, I think they could I, they could find the funds to build a building. I don't know if they could find the funds to staff it. Yeah, or even the people to staff it. Or even yeah. the people to staff. Yeah, that's. I, I think that's very true. Because I I believe, um, when I was teaching, they they struggled to find Paris. Mm-hmm. And they paid the paras about the same that they paid child care workers right now. Yeah. So I, I don't know, Dale, how they changed that. Yeah, I, well, they're struggling with this all over the country, and I don't, I don't yeah. have any answer for it. Yeah, but. you know, I, I, don't, I don't. I think your money ahead as a country, your money ahead in the long run if you make child care available so that people can work. But it's that initial cost that really, you know, gets them when they start thinking about how much it would cost to staff a building and build a building and get going and uh, be able to not charge so much that nobody can afford you. And uh, when, when I was a child, Dale, I, I was sent to the Methodist Church child care mm-hmm. in our community. Yeah. Um, I'd have been a three- and four-year-old, and um, my cousin just so happened to work there and you know, as I think back, I know she wasn't getting rich. Yeah. I can remember her home and everything. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and Ruby was a wonderful lady, and she was very good at her job. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Ruby was a, was a constant there at the Methodist Church childcare. But the other ladies were not constant. Yeah. Even even then, they struggled yeah. to to pay them. Well, I think when my kids were little, you know, preschool, I think there were four mothers, it was always the mothers, that were in-home mothers, and they would have a, they called them play dates, but once a week, four kids, the the kids would all go to one lady's house, and she would watch them for a couple hours, so the other three mothers had some free time to do some stuff, and they just kind of rotated, so they kind of helped each other out, and it didn't cost anything except to, you know, have a snack for them or anything, but it allowed them to do some things without little kids around, and, but now... You don't have all those mothers at home, and so uh, I, I guess I don't know what what you would do. I don't know. And you don't you, have your really. You know, you used to have grandma would be there. Yeah. But now grandma may live, you know, in California, mm-hmm. the way things are now, and so, uh, yeah, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if you remember about the time I graduated from high school would have been around 1979, 1980. A term came out that is uh, prominent, or not as prominent today as it was called latchkey children yeah, yeah and you know i it was that that term wasn't around but my mother and father both worked 
and I was a latchkey child. Mm-hmm. I would go home from school sure. with my own key and go mm-hmm. into the house and go hang out with the neighbors. Yeah. Probably shouldn't have um, at, the, at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean. Well, yeah, you wonder, like if you, you have a 10-year-old kid and you leave them at home alone and you, they're a very responsible child and nothing ever happened, but if something does happen, are you going to get in trouble as a parent because they, oh, you left a 10-year-old alone. How could you do that? Yeah. You say, well, he's quite capable, but this, and so it just depends what happens in your life and who's looking at you saying, yeah, you know, is that child endangerment because you left a 10-year-old alone or is 10 years old, is it have to be 12 or 15 or what's what's the age? And so uh, I know I, I think as a 10-year-old, my parents left me alone when they, you know, they were yeah. not gone for days, yeah. but I mean, they went grocery shopping or whatever. I don't think there was a real problem with that, but so. I, I remember about 10 years ago, I knew a single mother who could not afford daycare for three, mm-hmm. who had three daughters. Yeah. And one daughter was 10 and eight and six, and she, she would leave them alone for the day and tell the kids not answer the phone, and yeah. not answer the door. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and I don't know what kind of life that was for the children. Well, that's the thing. So you, you teach them to be afraid, and you teach them mm-hmm. you know, about rules. And so, yeah, there's a lot that goes on there. But uh, Yeah. So. This is the Steve Brown Art Center Podcast Network, and we would like to thank the White Funeral Home for providing the obituaries each week. And we have one obituary this week. Um, Richard Kimberly, 44 years old, of Jessup, Iowa, died on Thursday. February 9th, 2023, at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. He was born July 13, 1978, in Independence, Iowa, the son of Richard Lee and Rebecca Lynn Greenwood Kimberly. He graduated from high school in Chino Valley, Arizona, with the class of 1996. On June 30, 2001, he and Jennifer Jean Postel were married in Owen, Iowa. They later divorced. Mr. Kimley was a mechanic in the foundry at John Deere Company in Waterloo, Iowa. He was a member of the St. John's Catholic Church in Independence and the UAW Local 838. He was active in the Boy Scouts of America with his son and enjoyed fishing and watching the Iowa Hawkeye football. Mr. Kimley is survived by one daughter, Michaela Kimley of Cedar Falls, Iowa, and one son, Austin Kimley of Ames, Iowa, one grandson, Luca Coria. His parents, Rebecca and Richard Kimberly of Chino Valley, Arizona, and his grandmother, Betty Jean Wilson of Independence. He is also survived by two sisters, Megan Sandberg of Marion, Iowa, and Tiffany Kimberly of Chino Valley, Arizona. One niece, Riley Sandberg, and two nephews, Isaiah Kimberly and Ethan Sandberg. He was preceded in death by three grandparents and many aunts and uncles. This is Steve Brown Art Center Podcast Network. I'm Jim Gillespie with Dale Reber and producer Blake Tempest. We're lucky to have with us tonight Marsha McLaughlin. Welcome, Marsha. It's wonderful to have you with us. Well, thank you for asking me. Yeah. I'm glad um, to be here. Good. It, I, I told Marsha before we started uh, um, recording that uh, I, I really needed someone in the, that... Uh, could could share with us the the Jessup Renaissance that we had in the in the 1990s. The the arts Renaissance was incredible here, and thanks to many people. Um, I know your your husband Tom was on the board at the time, and 
and you and and Dale and Deb and well Howard did, Monica Byer I know did an awful lot yes. with uh, yeah. with uh, Arts in a Park and with the uh, with the Yings and all that whole program and, and, and Phil Elliott yeah Phil Hello. Elliott was yeah yeah uh, all that stuff we used to get to to enhance the programs yes. he yeah. had that big barn full of stuff and yes. uh, yeah that was uh, he was a great advocate oh yeah yes, he, he was. was yeah for the yeah. arts yeah he was so. and Tom also Tom was Clemic right yes yeah yep. very much so. So, so, um, Marcia, I guess um, th there's many things I'd like you to share, but, but I know you had a great friendship with the, the Ying Quartet. Um, you want to tell us about that a little bit? Well, it did start with Tom being on the school board, and Michael Crum, who was the superintendent at the time, was probably the central figure that brought them to Jessup through his association with the Cedar Arts Forum and Renata Sack, uh -huh. who was the director of that at the time, found out that the National Endowment for the Arts wanted to do a pilot program in rural states. They wanted to bring the arts to them, knowing that in some rural communities it wasn't always possible for them the students to be able to see the arts, observe the arts, and feel what the arts were all about. So they were going to start this pilot program, and Jessup Community School was the first to apply. And I'm not certain, and maybe Dale would know, how the Yings were chosen and if they decided to come to Jessup. That part I'm not certain yeah, of. I, I, I have no recollection. Of. But I do know they, they were from the suburbs of Chicago. I believe uh, parents, one was a doctor, one was a teacher. And when they were driving to Jessup, they hadn't seen all the cornfields that we have here. <laughs> so in driving here, they did have a few misgivings about what are we getting into. Yeah. Once they landed in Jessup, I don't think it took long for them to feel at home and for us to make them feel at home. It, to me, it was the best match that could have ever been yeah. made. Yeah. They were down-to-earth type young people, but yet they were so talented. It, and the music that they played was so wonderful. So this National Endowment for the Arts wanted educational for one thing. They wanted to bring the arts to the students. But the Yings also wanted the students to see how music could make a difference in their life. And I really think that it made a difference because from kindergarten on up, the first year of their residency, I think they concentrated more on the grade school area. And then the second year, they were more into the high school. But what they did when they came here is they, got, they became involved in all the community activities, all the school activities, all the church activities. So if you saw them on the street, you already knew them mm -hmm. because you had seen them yeah. on all all these events, and they helped whenever they could. And our J-STARS was a big part of that. 
uh, Deb Holt, uh, I believe, was president at that time. But as we talked, we had Phil Elliott, we had Tom Klemick, we had Maxine Aldridge, we had Joyce Wright, we had Howard and Monica Byer, we had Dale and Deb Reber, we had uh, Sue DeRoe, who was also on the school board, a good supporter of, of the arts. We had all these people, and during the time that they were here, it just was a magical era in Jessup to see all of this music come to life. They put on free concerts. They gave free lessons to kids. A Kim Adams wrote about, he took violin lessons. Well, I think, I think Virginia Hodges, I mean, she was, I mean, it, it was very senior citizen. I, I, I hate to say it because I'm in my memories, <laughs> but I know he, they gave lessons to people who were you know, past 70 also. Okay. And so, uh, yeah, they, they, they would work with whoever wanted and whoever showed an interest, yeah. They even went out to the Amish schools yeah. and performed. Now Came that to the basketball was, games. Yes. You know, they just, yes. But they, they, do talk, they did talk, and even in one of the articles that I reread, they talked about going out to the Amish. Okay. Some were afraid of them yeah. because they had never seen anything like that. Mm -hmm. Some of them were just really curious. Some of them wanted to listen, but when they got all done... They wanted to hear them play yeah. some more. Mm -hmm. I, I can remember the first day they got here. Um, the first day they came to town, they actually did a did a. Uh, they came and were introduced at the uh, the gym, mm -hmm. and I can't remember if they played songs that night or not. That part I do I do not remember yeah. either. I don't think so. I think they were. Just, it was some event, and they were there, and they introduced them. As I remember, and okay. I don't know that they played. Yeah, but uh, man, that's over thirty years ago. It is. It, <laughs> it, it is. Holy cow! So well, they came back in two thousand and eighteen mm -hmm. and played a concert here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that was wonderful. At oh, that yeah. time, then Tim had left the group. Mm -hmm. We had we had David. We had we had Philip. We had Janet yeah. and Tim. Tim had left the group and was married and living in Canada and yeah. teaching uh -huh. mm -hmm. at that time. So they had another person with them who, who played, played that them, day. Yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. So the, so they lived right here in Jessup, Marsha. Where did they live? Do you remember where they lived? They lived on 8th Street. I used to know whose house it was and everything. And yes. I can't pull it out. But it was towards the Dairy Queen. Yes. Yeah, in yeah. that, in that yes. area of town in the uh, Tegler edition, I guess you'd call it, right, in that area? Yes, yeah. and I'm trying to, th I I can see the house that it was. I don't, it wasn't the American Lutheran Parsonage that is now. Oh, you know, that it, that may have been. I think, I think, yeah, the, I think, I think the Zumox, right. yeah. the Zumox gave that, you know, house to, the, to mm. the American Lutheran Church, but I'm thinking maybe that's the house. I think, I think you're right. Because, I mean, I remember the house because a lot of, of members of the community, if there was something that was needed, they provided it mm -hmm. to yeah. the Yings. Yeah. They traveled extensively while they were here in Jessup. Yes, their contract was 50% of their time here in Jessup, but they also had all their other obligations to meet, engagements, mm -hmm. concert, that's, and 50%, they also did that. Like I had talked to, to you about the day of our daughter's wedding, that 
we invited them and they came and played. They landed in Cedar Rapids that morning, drove up, played, and then they could not stay because they had another engagement to be at that afternoon. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was a short time, but that's that's what's their life. Mm-hmm. You know, they, that's yeah. how they, they did. They did come and use our living room to practice because they liked the sound was better there, they said, at, at their home. So they did do that. So yeah, there were a lot of a lot of good times. Um, Phil Elliott hosted them numerous times at him at his home. Yeah. Besides Yings at that time, do you remember some other some other artists that came to town or that were here? Well, they did. Do you remember the concert they did with Greg Newman, the choreographer? Oh, yes, I do. Yeah. Where they took seventh and eighth graders. And they said it was impossible. They were impossible, they felt, to dance. By the time he got <laughs> done with those seventh and eighth graders, yeah. the impossible was possible because <laughs> they put on a concert with the Yings mm-hmm. and they danced. Yeah. And they did it very well. Yeah. And they enjoyed it. Right, yeah. right. It, it, we, we had... Uh, we we had a lot going for us. Um, it was that time that uh, CBS, yes. the CBS Morning News came and did a, a news show on us. Can you do you remember that, Marsha? Yes, they came in and they spent several days with the Yings and just kind of shadowed them to see what they were doing, and and then did a whole program on. I think it was I thought in my when I look back, I think it was March twenty first. Of 1993 on a Sunday morning, here yeah, it was we a are. Sunday morning, yeah, yeah. Here we are, Jessup, Iowa, yeah. on CBS. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah. Uh, it, that was uh, that was that was a big deal, and that was a long, long report. I remember. Yeah, that. it was a long segment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. yeah. It was it was a good segment. Yeah, yeah. and and then uh, you know when I brought in this uh, cassette and then this eight track. But they did, they did do a, a fundraiser where to produce this. It was called an, uh, the Ying Quartet, an Iowa experience. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people from Jessup did actually help make that happen yeah. also for mm-hmm. them. You know, how do we, as at, not only as the Steve Brown Arts Center, but uh, we as a community, Get something like that going again, Marcia. How how do you think that can happen? Well, I think you you have to be like a Michael Crum and know who to contact. I don't know too much about the Cedar Arts Forum anymore. You know, we have the Gallagher Blue Dorn, which is so close to us, and the yeah. Yings played there mm-hmm. in 1994, and that that was a wonderful event. If there's somebody through the college that could maybe help us to inspire this happening again, it would it would be wonderful. In mentioning the Steve Brown Arts Center, the Yings talked about Steve Brown and how much they enjoyed collaborating with his their music with his art classes. Ah, ah, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. The Steve was not afraid to jump in and do things like that. Steve Steve was was always uh, 
was always volunteering to do things like that. I, I, I can remember being in uh, Steve's room one day um, for some reason, and Mr. Crumb came in and said, we need a program for, it was like for the Yings and some other musical guests that we were, we were having, and we need it for tomorrow. And I looked at, looked at Steve and I thought, well, how is he gonna handle this? And Steve looked at like five of his seniors and he said, you guys make this. And he just <laughs> handed it to them. And I saw Steve at the end of the day, and I said, "Did they get it done?" Yeah, they got it done. Yeah. So he he was he was not afraid to uh, to jump in. Um, well, there were a few of us that did participate in a concert in February of 1994. John Bergman, if you all remember yeah, John, yeah. Steve Brown, Phil Elliott, Mr. Crum. Maxine Aldridge, Joyce Wright, and myself, and Craig conducted us. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, we all had this little part that we played yeah. <laughs> in this concert <laughs> with, with the Yings. What I remember, well, a lot of things, but everything was done, and I, know, I think a lot of this was, in my opinion, Monica Byer, with elegance. You know, like if they sold cookies at one of the concerts, the tables had linen tablecloths yes. and they used real, real plates and yes. uh, everything was done very, very nice. There'd be flowers on the table, this sort of thing. And there's always that touch of elegance. It was not just, we're going to throw something together here. Everything was done with class. And I think that had a lot to do with the success of the whole program also, is that uh, the people in the community saw how seriously. Yes. It was being taken by the people working with them, and uh, you know they bought into that. And so, like I said, the J Stars were a good working group yeah. at that point in time, and they they did, like you said, they mm -hmm. they made everything just so wonderful. Yeah. But you had people like Monica Byer, yeah, and then Phil Elliott <laughs> with yeah. all of his wonderful sure. ideas, yeah. and like you said, he had. A lot of the things that we <laughs> oh, use. Oh yeah, see that most people concerts. wouldn't have available. He had right. a, a whole barn full of things, and yes. uh, I sometimes think my only contribution was going and help put up backdrops and carry things. <laughs> I didn't have much art, <laughs> but I could lift things and move things around when some nice lady told me where to put it. You know, <laughs> but it, everything was just done with such class. It was just very, it very, was. very. Uh, you don't see that anymore. No, uh, no, it. It was a wonderful time in Jessup. Yeah. It just was an exciting, wonderful time. Mm -hmm. yeah. And to be a student, and by that time, my three children had already graduated, yeah. and so they didn't get that experience. They all were involved in the arts uh, that Jessup had to offer, but mm -hmm. they didn't get to experience yeah. this only through knowing the Yings, mm -hmm. you know, as sure. friends. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what a great friendship to yes. have, you know, that's just just yes. incredible. What a great memory for Roxanne to have them play at her wedding. Oh, besides. yes, yes. Yeah. The, the, uh, does the, do the J-Stars still exist in our community? I don't believe that that group exists anymore. And again, I think they have combined those groups, like they had the, uh, the athletic group, and you have the J Stars group, and I think they're all kind of working together now. I think it's one organization now. And it's now. one organization uh, uh, that handles all that sort of thing. Right. And uh, but I don't know. I mean, there there used to be in the lobby when you came into the be the old gym now. 
uh, like a trophy case, and they yes. would have exhibits in that that the J Stars would take care of, and and really nice things that the kids had done or uh, plaques or whatever. And I'm not sure. I don't know if they're doing that anymore or not because they don't use that entrance like they once did, uh, because the you know the new gym is on the other side. So I don't know a lot of those things. I have really don't know if uh, they're doing as much of that sort of thing or not. You know, we should have somebody modern on. <laughs> tell mm-hmm. us what to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and then that would be. I'm sorry, but it was a lot. It was a place where the students could see what some of their peers were doing. You know, some neat, really yes. neat things that they were doing. Otherwise, you know, you do it, you get graded, it goes home, and it's you know gone. But this way, uh, the kids could could really have a purpose for their art and know it was going to be displayed. And right. then, uh, I thought that was really good. I'm I'm extremely Marsha. I'm extremely excited about the 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 uh, auditorium being built. Yes. Um, it, that's going to bring good things to um, not only Jessup schools but to uh, the community as well. Much needed and <laughs> needed it many years ago. Mm-hmm. Many years ago. The the uh, I know I know uh, when Mr. Crum was here, he did many things to. Uh, Changed the sound in the old gym, um, put up the soundboards mm-hmm. up above there, but a, but an auditorium will 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 change a lot of that, I believe. I, I believe that also, and that was one of the things he would have liked to have accomplished while he was here. Yeah, was yeah. an auditorium. Yeah, yeah. Well, you got to fight your battles, though. I mean, you know, the community wasn't ready. I don't think no. at that time, and uh, no. But I think it is ready now, though. I think because uh, I sure hope yeah, so. Yeah. Because I, it would be wonderful to have. Yeah, I, I think so too. So there, are, there are a number of people like yourself and and Dale and and Howard and, and Monica and and Ruth Snyder. Oh yeah. And, yes. and Mary Steuben. You know, there's a number of people around that that were very active. That I I really believe can uh, get us in that direction as we as as we grow as the steve brown arts center grows i think uh i think we can have a uh, a ying quartet or artists in our community again at some point that's a that's that's our dream marcia well that's a wonderful dream yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I i truly believe that there are many of us in jessup who will support that dream and help help make that happen in whatever way that we can. We're all retired, but that doesn't mean we're not without ideas yeah. and and ways to help. Oh, and, and I appreciate that, Marcia. Thank you so much. Um, Marcia, is there anything you have written down there that you'd like to talk about that we haven't spoke with you about? No, I think we probably covered it all. I, I just know that the Yings really enjoyed their time here as much as the community enjoyed having them here. They made quite a difference in all of our lives. And I truly hope that the children, like you taught Dale, have some, still have those memories yeah, I do too. of them. Yeah. So. Because it, it, it brought a whole new world to mm-hmm. them yeah. that they might never have ever had the opportunity to ever Mm-hmm. see or or feel yeah no uh, how often are you in contact with the inks not that often just 
once in a great while. Mm-hmm. I, I wish it was more, but they, they, you know, they are older and they have their own lives now. So yeah, it's it's yeah. just a little bit different than yeah. what it was back in in the nineties. Right. So. Well, Marcia, thank you so much for coming in. I know you're a busy person. You you came from a, a meeting just before this to come into this. So thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. All right. This is the Steve Brown Arts Center Podcast Network. Um, I'm Jim Gladsby with Dale Reber and producer Blake Tempest. We're now going to the city news. As, as Dale talked about early, earlier, the theme for this year is Jessup Farmer's Day was set. Um, blast off to Jessup, July 6th through the 8th. And thank you, Dale, for sharing that. Glad to. Um, uh, they meet... Uh, Today, the day that uh, the 20th of February, the city council meets, they're, they're going to talk about a veterans park um, on the south end of 6th Street here. Oh. Um, it's, if you're interested, contact Fritz Keys. They're, they're talking about $100,000 for that park, um, lights and monuments, etc. Do you know uh, where it's going to be? Uh, where it's going to be? It's yeah. going to be um, if you go down by Casey's, um, go to the, go to the stop sign. Mm-hmm. There's a lot there on the left side. Okay, I believe right oh, there okay. is where it's going to be. All right. So, I so, always thought that little island between the grocery store and Sixth Street. You know, I always thought that would be a neat place. That would be for a, a neat welcome place. to Jessup with flowers and a flagpole and yeah. some veterans things. But uh, but that'll work out. You know, I'm sure yeah, that will. And yeah. we, had, although we had Fritz on um, late last year on the podcast, um, I know Fritz wants to talk more about this project, mm-hmm. and I will contact Fritz and try to get him on again can so he can his, share this. Get his mustache through the door. Oh, <laughs> uh, but please forgive Dale, Fritz. <laughs> I know Fritz listens, so they are uh, also. Real happy as they, they were telling me that for the splash pad they recently got a donation of fifteen thousand dollars from the VGM group over in Waterloo, um, which they were real excited about. And on March second, there's a contingent going down to Des Moines to talk to a group called uh, the Enhancement. Iowa community for a CAT grant for, I believe it's around $77,520. And I was talking to Coley today, and he said that uh, the Enhancement of Iowa community group contacted Jessup and asked them to come down, so they must have made the first step in that Uh uh, process. Coley said that that $77,000 would go to the second phase of the splash pad. Uh, so so that's exciting. I, I know that uh, that Becky, along with Eric, Becky Wispan, who we had on last week, along with uh, Erica Havlick, have worked extremely hard, along with the city and a number of other people. So So that's the city news for February 20th.
Dale, I know you wanted to talk today a little bit about the Iditarod, so that that is coming March 3rd, the, the first Saturday of March. Could you uh, talk a little bit about that? Okay, well, I won't talk about the Iditarod per se, but just my personal experience with something about the Iditarod. And I just look, I got a number here, 1,049 on this paper, and I have no idea what that, <laughs> what that number refers to. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Deb and I went to Alaska with uh, Rich and Cheryl Schaefer, and uh, as part of the, the tour we were on, we went to the Husky Homestead, which is uh, near uh, Denali, Mount Denali Park, and uh, at the Husky Homestead, that's the, the home and training area of a man named Jeff King. And Jeff King is an Iditarod, uh, I don't know if it's a survivor's word, but he actually uh, is a four-time winner, 1993, 1996, 1998, and 2006. He won again after a, quite a break, and he was uh, the oldest ever to win it that year. He was 50 years old. And he's finishing the top 10, 20 times, and 14 of those times in... Uh, the top five and so he is uh, quite the guy and what he has done is uh, actually I suppose it's a way for him to finance everything but uh, people from that are visiting Denali then get on a tour and they come out to this husky homestead and you get off the bus and they put a little puppy in your arms and you start cuddling the puppy right away and then uh, you see his training set up and where the dogs are at and uh, then he, you know, he talks with you, and then you, you know, see the big Iditarod trophies in the trophy case and that sort of thing. And so it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful tour. It's wonderful reviews. It's one of the best things you can do if you're going to Denali in Alaska. Uh, they raise Alaskan Husky. If you think of the Huskies like, uh, I think like the Husky uh, motto at Old Wine has, or, you know, the picture of a that's not the kind of dogs that they race. These are Alaskan Huskies. They don't go to any dog shows or anything like that, but they do have a, a genetic trace that you can put on them. And these are working dogs, and they uh, are fast, and they have endurance, and they love to run. And uh, he was showing where when you're hitching these dogs up, you almost have to have somebody underneath the front legs holding them up on their back legs and kind of walk them on their back legs to hook them up, because if you just set them down, and hook them up, but away they go. You know, they don't wait for anything. They just love to run. And uh, when they have puppies there, they have litter names for their puppies. And I wrote down someone like, they had the paleontology litter, like the, the pup they showed was named Raptor. And they have the sandwich litter, and that was Reuben that was the one they showed. And the, the Stallone litter was Rambo. And they even had a palindrome litter, and that was Radar. <laughs> so, uh, uh, that's how they kind of keep track of the litter. So if, they, if you see a, a dog named what, Grilled Cheese, you know, he was from the sandwich litter. They can kind of uh, take care of him that way. And these dogs uh, love to race in the Iditarod. Uh, he is credited with coming up with all kinds of training innovations. One they show they have, I don't know if you've seen the little uh, cages inside the gerbil, the little wheel inside the gerbil where they run in the wheel. Well, he has one of those for dogs. And uh, it's an eight-foot diameter, and you put a dog in there, and it goes around, and the dog runs. It's, it keeps them uh, active in the summertime. He started swimming his dogs, where he would take them. They have a lake near there, and the dogs would swim so many minutes a day as part of their training in the summertime. And then he has one of these four-wheel uh, ATV things, and he'll hook the dogs up to that and have them pull that in the summertime just to keep them in shape. 
And so he also has been very big with nutrition uh, for dogs. And uh, uh, the article I read said many of the things they have found about nutrition for these Alaskan dogs, uh, dog food companies take that and put it into the dogs, into the food that you feed, you know, Fido in your kitchen or whatever for the nutrition that uh, they have learned a lot from running these dogs that they did arrive. And I'm trying to think, they are very uh, careful of these dogs that run these, because these races are like a thousand miles. And there are a team of 55 veterinarians, international, that come for the Iditarod and they scatter out and they check these dogs every day. Every dog gets checked. They check them before they start to run. They look at their shot card and take, uh, give them an examination then every day when they stop running they examine their feet and uh, uh, everything about them to make sure that they are okay and for the life of me I <laughs> somewhere in my travels I have talked to a veterinarian from around here who volunteered to be one of those Iditarod veterinarians and I can't for the life of me remember who it is so I'm sorry about that because talking with him was very interesting and uh so, but he looked at the scientific method of feeding and training dogs, and he was great at calculating the trail strategy, very innovative. And uh, he also had sled designs that made the sleds faster. And so every year when they ran the Iditarod, uh, and I don't know if he's running this year or not, but uh, he was really uh, a guy to look at. He has uh, won the Iditarod four times. The Yukon Quest is a thousand mile race. He, ran, he won that in 1989 plus 24 other races where he has finished first. And they say he's logged more than 160,000 miles on a dog sled over the last 35 plus years. And so uh, he is, is quite the guy. Uh, it's talking, he talked about he have uh, different, is the A team is the one that he uses as races and the dogs work to get on the A team and, and they look at him very carefully. And then they look at the dogs, okay, who would be a good lead dog and who'd be a, a back dog that could get a lot of power to get the sled going at first and this sort of thing. They really examine these dogs to find out how they will, uh, where they will work best. And I know they have the, the fan design where they have just like this and then they have the Alaskan design is two, 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 two. And I hadn't realized that there was uh, more than one way, but uh, these sprint teams can go as much as 28 miles an hour. Uh, they had a distance team, went 938 miles in eight days, four hours, 40 minutes and 13 seconds, and that included 40 hours of mandatory rest stops. And so these dogs require 10,000 to 12,000 calories per day. And so they have this, uh, it's a, a dry, lightweight food they can carry, but then they have this, they call it a soup. It's a very nutritious liquid that they've put in with the food, so when the dogs eat it, they get uh, more nutrition, and the dogs also will take mouthfuls of snow as they run, I guess, also for moisture. A lot of, lot of fish, a lot of fish in that. I suppose, food. yeah, because yeah. yeah. that would be what they would have uh, fed them, and so. Uh, you may have noticed, if you watch the Iditarod, uh, they have these uh, boots that they put on the dogs to protect their feet, and it's not from the cold, but it's just from abrasions and uh, to prevent ice from to prevent ice from forming uh, between their toes. And you have veins and arteries, right? right? And the arteries take the blood away from the heart and the veins take it back to the heart. So the blood in the arteries is warmer than the blood coming back. So the dogs keep their feet warm because our arteries and veins are kind of side by side, but when the dogs down in their feet, they are intertwined. And so the, the artery blood 
helps warm the vein blood and it helps keep ah. their feet warm. So they've adapted over the, the centuries so their feet don't get cold because right. that the way, that, well, they, I have to see what they call it. It's called countercurrent heat exchange that they have in their feet. Mm -hmm. And that keeps their feet warm. And so, uh, so what they're doing with the Iditarod is they're celebrating the race or the uh, the journey we talked about, taking the medicine. And I know some years in Iditarod they don't have enough snow. Some years they have to pipe in or haul in snow in certain parts of the race so they can run it or they have to change the route to where uh, there is snow available. And you wouldn't think that would be the case in Alaska, but. Uh, uh, it is, but they run this race every year. They have two routes, yeah. northern and southern route. Yeah, is that right? Okay. Yeah. And uh, so, but they uh, are running it again March the 3rd, and uh, I don't know if, if they used to get coverage on ESPN before mm -hmm. ESPN got real big. I don't know if they still do much with it or not. Do you? Well, there there has <laughs> been a push recently by the animal rights activist about the about the abuse of the dogs, uh -huh. they claim it's an abuse of the dogs. But these are these dogs are are bred to run. Yeah, they they yeah. are runners. Yeah. You know, they're they're not punishing these dogs by asking them to run. Um, like you say, they have they have those those stockings. Actually, each sled must carry eight different sets of stockings for each dog. Mm -hmm. I yeah. mean, be they. They go out of their way, as you say. These dogs eat ten thousand calories a day. <laughs> they um, they take incredible care. There's one musher, um, I believe his name is Dallas Seavey. He actually runs most of the race. He doesn't ride his sled most mm -hmm. of the race. Um, he runs with his team rather than forcing his team to carry him yeah. because he takes such good care of. Him. Yeah. Uh, and there's some of these dogs I've, I saw that they are two and three year veterans. I mean, they don't just do it once and die. I mean, they are capable. They are athletes. Yeah. And they are capable of doing this more than once. And they, uh, it, from what I've seen and what I've read, they take very good care of these dogs. And mm -hmm. they, they love those dogs. And uh, you cannot believe uh, how much they work with them and uh, care for them. And uh, it's uh, really an amazing thing. Uh, to see him, but no, they they love to run. They lived for that. Yeah, and they do. Uh, I think it would be terrible. I don't know what would they do you <laughs> if you, if they didn't have these things. Right. Uh, uh, I don't know. There would be no reason for those dogs. There, there is, like you say, you know, the King Kennel. Um, you talked about the there's uh, there's uh, Mackie Kennel. There's uh, there's the CV Kennel out there. There's there's a number of kennels. Uh, there's a lot of mushers in Alaska. Yeah, and and the you know the, those dogs, those dogs love to love yeah. to run. And, you know they're not abusing them. And the article I read said that the dogs, when their racing is done, they adapt very well to becoming house dogs. That they are very friendly and very you know good with people, and they adapt very readily to becoming a you know a pet rather than a worker. And so. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think they're, I, I guess, I, guess <laughs> I think I'll leave them alone. It's, it's going, and because, I mean, I don't know how much more you could do. I mean, you get the veterinarians to check them. Yeah. You got the dog right there. The dogs are healthy. And one thing they have started doing is because of, uh, you know, they're always tinkering with the breed and the coat is not quite as thick on the head. Right. So they have these little jackets they put on them sometimes now, along with the booties to uh -huh. help them stay warm. But, uh, 
I would think running like they do, they have no problem. And I think they just sleep in the snow. They do. Yeah, okay. they they uh, <laughs> they uh, are very well adapted for life in Alaska, and uh, so so anyway, if you go to Alaska and you go to Denali, uh, there's a tour. It's, it's the, called the Husky Homestead, and I encourage you to uh, to go on that because you'll learn an awful lot. And uh, those Iditarod trophies are huge, and they're very. It's really neat to see. So I'll bring you a picture and show you. I believe the winner today. I mean, the winner this year is awarded $50,000 and a Ram pickup truck, I believe, oh, okay. is what goes to the winner. Okay. Um, and I don't believe they make enough money. I think that's that money is less than what it costs to run there. Oh, yeah. If you, have, if, you had, the animals. if you had 50 dogs yeah. and you feed them, hiring people to help work and his family all works with him but uh yeah you're not you're not uh, you're not getting rich off this it's it's a labor of love more than anything as far as i'm concerned yeah so there was a passing here recently um a, a man by the name of lance Mackey just passed lance had won um four years in a row 2007 2008 2009 2010 lance had fought cancer he had fought uh um, drug addiction. He had, uh, you know, he had lost his wife. He, in one of the uh, Iditarods, he carried his mother's ashes in her honor. Uh, lost, lost her just before the race. Um, but he died here um, in 2022. And I see that his brother Jason, who had had gotten out of the racing for a while and had restarted a kennel is back in it. Many of the old timers like Mitch Seavey and Dallas Seavey are not in this race this year. Um, but, w but with Mackie back in this race, with Jason Mackie back in this race, it's going to, he's going to change some things. Okay. So, Dale, that's a nice job on that. Thank you so much. That's all right. Glad for to do that. It. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. I'll let, um, I love listening to the Iditarod and watching that. Uh, the Steve Brown Arts Center has uh, many events going. Uh, this January, we, we've uh, we've released two um, musical podcasts this past January. Um, John Decker right now has Valentine's Art Show at M's and Independence. We are about to start the StoryCorps process with you and I, I will share how to do that with you next week that is my plan so don't forget on february 25th we have bar prowl from marion from two until four o'clock barb will paint for about 45 minutes and she will bring about a dozen pieces of her work please stop down and see barb she is a lady that uh is over 80 years old and still teaches class every day. That's something. Yeah. As I said earlier, the jazz festival that we were were working with Union High School is postponed for this year. But July 29th, we the first Lulton Free Watermelon Day is going to happen. We have signed three bands or three musical groups for that. We have Bad the Bad Habits Band. The Chet Reagan Musical Experience with Manny McCleary and the Belvins and Powers. We have food trucks, 
that include the Lions Club, Boyd, the Boyd's Food Truck from Fairbank, and Totally Rolled Ice Cream from Northeast Iowa out of, uh, I, believe, I believe they're in West Union is where they're out of. And then, we, then the Independence FFA is going to provide free watermelon this okay. year. So there will be no, more announcements as we head toward that. Don't forget that the Steve Brown Arts Center is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that has a vision for artists, young and old alike, to have the opportunity to better themselves while helping to build the skills of those around them. If you you want more information about the Steve Brown Arts Center, go to stevebrownartcenter.org, go to our Facebook page, or go to Twitter. And if you'd like to donate to the Steve Brown Arts Center or have an idea for an event, go to stevebrownartcenter.org and follow the link. If you have any news or would like to sponsor us, email us at jgillespiegolf at gmail.com or call 319-290-0241 and leave a message. The winner of last week's trivia question, remember the question was, can you name the modern name of former British Honduras? And Roger Oberhauser from Parkersburg, Iowa, um, also one of the girls' basketball coaches here in town. Okay. He... He answered it. Belize. Belize. Yeah. Belize is that is that country. It's located just t- the tip of Mexico, south of Mexico, on the south east side. Okay. So, Dale, do you have a trivia question for yes, us this week? Yes, I do. I came up with one. So, and I've told this to hundreds of people. So, somebody should be able to call. <laughs> anyway, if uh, we'll give me your email, okay? Yes. When you're done. And uh, we'll get a $10 gift certificate to the Dairy Cone. If you can tell me where Jessup's, Jessup had a jail and the building is still there. So if you can call in or type in, email Gillespie and tell him where that jail is, well, then we'll put all the right guessers in a bowl and pull out a, pull out a name because you should get more than one for this. So if you know where that building is, and it's going to be an answer like it's on such and such a street, and it's east of this or west of this or whatever, uh, just to kind of pinpoint it down, because I don't think it has an address. But <laughs> but anyway, if you know where the Jessup Jail is located, why uh, Jim will give you his email address and email him with that answer, and we will try to find a winner for next week, okay? Again, you can contact me at jgillespiegolf at gmail.com, or you can call me at 319-290-0241 with that answer, or you can text me at 319-290-0241 with the answer. That's a $10 gift certificate at the Dairy Dairy Cone. Dairy Cone Other Half. Uh, Is it still called the Dairy Cone Other Half or not? To me, it's just the Dairy Cone. Okay. (laughs) That's the half I use. uh. Thank thank you, Dale, for (laughs) being on this, this week. I'm Jim Gillespie. Thanks to our producer, as always, Blake Tempest. Um, he's got he's got a lot to edit this week. <laughs> yeah. um, thanks to Kelly Seahouse at Co 